0: If you love the world of mathematics, and even if you don't, I think you uh, n- nonetheless need to explore a book which really helps us understand how mathematics can be an amazing tool to help us understand the world around us and uh, it can help us understand a lot of what happens to us in our lives, right down to why things never work out quite like we want uh, at the... Uh, at the car garage, uh, why schedules don't play out exactly the way we want to, why predictions sometimes fall so far uh, from, uh, from reality, why it sometimes seems like the, the worst possible thing occurs, uh, all kinds of interesting things about our daily lives tied to mathematics in a new book called How Math Explains the World a guide to the power of numbers from car repair to modern physics. The author is James D. Stein, professor of mathematics at California State University in Long Beach. And uh, the book is published by uh, Collins. It's a Smithsonian book. And uh, I am really happy to have this opportunity to speak with the author. Professor James D. Stein, we welcome you to The Morning Show.
1: Thank you very much, Greg. Thanks for inviting me.
0: I... uh, I am really looking forward to this very much, although I have to say I come to this as someone who is not particularly adept at mathematics and very, very rusty. I have to say right off the bat that uh, I found your book unexpectedly accessible, and, uh, and I think you talk uh, in the preface of the introduction about how you really took great pains to try to put together a, a book which anybody could read, uh, even people that are not math majors who have, or who have not had math in a long time.
1: Well, I tried to do my best. Because it's a book about math, you almost have to put some equations in. But I tried to write it in such a way that if you aren't comfortable with the actual uh, details of it, what you could always do is you could always, when you see equations being presented, you can just skip to where the text continues because... Mathematicians love to put in equations because, for us, they not only represent great truths, as Einstein's E equals MC squared does, but they're also the connecting links between truths.
0: Mm-hmm. I-, I love the uh, quotation you have of of uh, the famous uh, writer and I think physicist Stephen Hawking for his book A Brief History of Time. Uh, and you draw a really interesting parallel or, or sort of take his quotation sort of to its its, its, uh, its furthest uh, application in terms of your own book. Tell our listeners what I'm talking about.
1: Surely. Um, Stephen Hawking, in the preface to A Brief History of Time, said that um, his publishers told him that for every equation that he put in the book, the readership would dwindle by 50%. And so he said, I can't write a book on physics without putting in E equals mc squared. So he put a book in, he put E equals mc squared in, and the book was a uh, New York Times bestseller. And um, I have to feel that people who pick up a math book, and with the word math in the title, they've decided to read it, um, are willing to put up with some equations. And if every time I put in an equation, it reduced the readership by 50%, There are six billion people roughly in the world, and by the time you get to the 33rd equation, only one person is left to read the book.
0: (laughs) So you really hope they're wrong in in their predictions.
1: (laughs) Not only do I hope they're wrong, my my publishers certainly hope they're wrong, too.
0: Right. Uh, Also in that preface is a really delightful little story you tell about your own father and uh, a a day when you wanted to uh, toss a football around with him, but he had something important to do first.
1: Yes, my father was a uh, very meticulous businessman, and every month what he would do is he would take all his expenses and all his incomes and put them on a big yellow sheet of paper. I can still remember this, and it sort of looked like uh, an Excel spreadsheet does now, and I remember on a particular fall afternoon, fall being football season, I wanted to toss the football around, and my father said, i got to get this sheet to balance. But it shouldn't take long because there is an error of 36 cents, and whenever you see an error that's divisible by 9, it probably happened because you switched some numbers around. And he explained to me that if he had meant to write down 48, but he actually wrote down 84, switching the 8 and 4, then 84 minus 48 was 36, which is divisible by 9. And so since I wasn't going out for a while, I decided to get a pad and try it, and I got 72 and switched them and got 27 and subtracted, and the difference was 45, which was divisible by 9, even though I was only 8 years old at the time. I knew my uh, I knew my division by 9 and my multiplication table, and I tried it for a while, and it fascinated me that it was true, but of course, being, you know, being only 7 or 8 years old, I couldn't see how I would manage to establish this for all possible collections of numbers unless I actually worked through all of them. But it turns out that later on that I discovered that algebra has a shortcut for doing this. But anyway, this was my first insight into the fact that there was more to arithmetic than simply adding up things and learning the multiplication table.
0: Right. Well, and it was probably, in a sense, one of your first uh, experiences of how mathematics... uh, Engaged with the real world, uh, apart from the sort of obvious story problems that we might remember from elementary school i mean this is this is another in a sense more vivid example of how math is really relevant to our daily lives
1: um, I certainly think, and I think every mathematician and every math teacher feels the same way that we 're teaching one of the most relevant subjects you could possibly imagine and the example that i use in the book to illustrate some of the difficulties that we encounter in trying to use mathematics is how difficult it is to schedule car repairs at a garage which explains why when they told you it would be ready at four o'clock and you call at three forty-five and say can i come over and pick up my car you find that the car isn't ready when you look at a relatively simple job like you have to pay the monthly bills so you get it you have a stack of bills you get the checkbook you write a check you put it in an envelope after you've done a few of these you see the stack of bills dwindling and after a while you can see that you're getting closer and closer to the end but with the car repair problem If uh, a garage has a bunch of cars in the shop and they start making out a schedule for it, they get to the end and they may find that they've got four cars, all of which need the hydraulic lift at the same time, so they have to tear up the schedule and start again. And even when they manage to complete a schedule, they might look at the schedule and say, well, I wonder if we changed the spark plugs on the Chevy earlier, whether we could have finished a little sooner Um, Even when you complete the job, you can't be sure that you've done the best job possible, and that's an indication of why this is such a difficult problem, and it's so difficult a problem that there's a million-dollar prize out if you can solve it.
0: (laughs) In other words, if there is a relatively simple, tidy solution for that, it would be huge. But you suggest uh, at the end of the chapter, some problems may well be so complex that there is no perfect way to solve them.
1: Yeah, we've encountered this as a phenomenon in, from the 20th century. Um, one of the things that uh, we have difficulty with is we have difficulty with lots of tasks that involve prediction. Of course, what we would love to be able to do is predict the weather. You'd love to be able to predict predict the weather three to five days in advance so you know whether or not you can plan a picnic, but you'd also like to know whether or not the weather that we see and the weather that we saw in the past really is indicative of a phenomenon like global warming, because of course you know that's a highly controversial topic. And it turns out that um, the equations that govern weather are so delicate that there's no really adequate way that we can do a good job of predicting the weather. You've probably heard the term the butterfly effect, which was coined by one of the first people to investigate this topic. And it's a beautiful phrase because it illustrates the idea that the equations that govern weather are so sensitive to initial differences that whether or not a butterfly flaps its wings in Hawaii could determine whether or not there's a tornado three weeks later in Oklahoma.
0: One of the uh, one of the funniest quotes in the book is from somebody named Niels Bohr. I don't know that name, but he ob- uh, observed prediction is difficult, especially of the future. Yes. and uh, and of course, you know, in in a sense, it, it that sort of says something about the way in which we often blithely engage in prediction. Uh, in a sense, kind of oblivious to the potential of being. Wrong, and sometimes very wrong. Sometimes catastrophically wrong, and yet sometimes we are amazingly successful at being able to predict what is going to occur. It's it's a very interesting uh, reality with which we wrestle.
1: Um, yes, it is, Greg. One of the things that uh, we've discovered is that systems tend to divide themselves into roughly two categories: the ones that are simple. And these are the ones in which we can do a very good job of predicting things. I remember, you know, you can look in uh, Mark Twain's A Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court and see how effective it is to be able to predict eclipses of the sun. And this was also one of my early childhood experiences. I can remember looking at the uh, front page of the New York Times and it said that there was going to be an eclipse of the sun that day and it would start at such and such a time and it would end at such and such a time. And I thought this was amazing that we could do that, and also during the uh, era of space exploration that took place at the end of the 1970s and the 1980s, when we were um, when we were uh, sending spacecraft out to explore the outer planets, to me it was just amazing. I would see the trajectories of these uh, of these spacecraft, and they would have to loop around the sun, and then they would loop twice around the Earth, and Seven months later, they would pass by uh, the moons of Jupiter, and they did this precisely. It's an amazingly complicated engineering task to be able to achieve this. But from a mathematical standpoint, the laws of gravitation were worked out three centuries ago by Isaac Newton, and it's not that complicated a mathematical problem. So the simple systems are handled relatively easily. It's the systems with a lot of different variables such as the weather or car scheduling that turns out to be the problems that even though they seem sort of ordinary they're phenomenally difficult and mathematics hasn't thrown in its hand, in the towel because even if we can't do things exactly there's always the hope that we can do things well enough to be able to to be able to make useful progress in the problem even if you can't predict the weather perfectly if you can say, "Okay, it's going to rain," uh, it's going to rain eighty percent of the time on Friday. Um, that's still good enough for a lot of uh, for a lot of practical purposes.
0: Hmm. Well, and you talk uh, about uh, how value can be gained from what might turn out to be sort of a wild goose chase of one kind or another if a scientist is. Pursued something in which ultimately the, the, their, their their central goal cannot be achieved, there might be ancillary goals that that yield all kinds of, of 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 benefits. You say at one point, the story of such failures and the surprising developments that occur because of them is actually a lot of what you talk about in this book.
1: Yes, I think that one of the things that 's been extremely uh, important in the development of both science and mathematics is that. Dead ends are not absolute. Sometimes what happens is we run into a dead end, but in trying to circumvent it, uh, we find another even more useful solution. Um, If you take a look at some of the numerous dead ends that uh, we've encountered in science in the 17th century, uh, we were still trying to explore whether or not alchemy was the way to understand the universe and whether or not there would be a philosopher's stone Whose touch would transmute base metals into gold that didn 't work out, um, and certainly it might be nice to find something which would change things into gold. but what we actually did was we actually uncovered the atomic theory, which turns out to explain matter and once we uh, once we discovered how to do chemistry, we were able to devise drugs and all sorts of chemicals which make our lives a whole lot better than I can possibly imagine. Um, alchemy or the ability to change base metal into gold would be. I'd much rather live in a world today with all the wonderful uh, technological developments we have than a world in which uh, a world in which there was some magic rock somewhere, which if you managed to find it, it would change lead into gold.
0: Hmm. Uh- at one point in your book you uh, you quote somebody by the name of Hardy saying that uh, oh yes g h hardy that a mathematician is like a painter or a poet, a maker of patterns and uh, it 's very interesting uh, how here and there in the book, we will see the uh, interesting parallels drawn, how mathematics can be actually a, a a world of of great beauty, and I think a lot of us who uh, have maybe not not probed deeply enough into mathematics uh, or or, or given it the care it deserves have not managed to see it that way. We see it exactly the opposite, but in your book, you also draw a couple of interesting contrasts, Uh, for instance, drawing an interesting contrast between uh, what can happen with Mathematicians and scientists, when they are blocked in trying to uh, achieve something or discover something, versus the writer's block of an author or a composer. Uh, just talk for a moment about the interesting difference there. I think it's a uh, fascinating observation.
1: Uh, thank you very much. It's, it interested me, too, because um, I know several creative people and they're they're writers or they're musicians and sometimes what happens is that a writer runs into writer's block. He either doesn't have ideas or he doesn't feel that the ideas that he have are worth developing. And I think every writer knows that, that after you've uh after you've produced uh several creative works Sometimes you just sort of hit a dead end, but that's a failure of the creative process as far as you're concerned. It's not a failure of literature or music. You know there's, you know, you know there's still books to be written and music to be composed. You just can't do it at the moment. But for scientists it's very different because what might happen is you might be investigating a problem, and it may turn out that there is no solution. This has happened in mathematics. This has happened in science, and sometimes it's just an inevitable feature of the world. One of the ways in which it uh, uh, it impacts our lives is the fact that the electoral process in the United States is fundamentally flawed and cannot be fixed when you have... Elections in which you have three or more candidates. This was one of the major discoveries of the 20th century in that if you have an election with three or more candidates, there's no perfect procedure for determining the winner. You might decide that, okay, what we're going to do is we're just going to take the guy who gets the most votes, even if he doesn't get a majority of the votes. Um, and elect him, but many cities or many states, what they do is if they have a number of candidates they, and there isn't a clear winner, what they do is they have a runoff between the top two candidates. And what can happen in that instance is that the people who voted for people who were eliminated from the ballot Um, vote for the runner-up. And as a result, the person who was the runner-up in the initial balloting ends up winning the election. This has happened numerous times. And it turns out that no matter how you try to tweak the system of, uh, of determining a winner in such a situation, you can't fix it. And another thing that you can't fix is you can't fix the Electoral College. There's no way of preventing the fact that Um, voters in some states are going to carry more clouts in presidential elections than voters in other
0: states. Hmm. So, in a sense, it is pointing up the untidiness, and and, and this would be one of those problems that is, maybe on the surface it doesn't seem like it, but in fact is so complicated that at least up until now it has eluded tidy solution. You call the discovery of this untidiness... One of the big three discoveries of the 20th century, uh, which have really shown scientists and mathematicians and the rest of the world as well, that there are real limits to what we can, in fact, understand and accomplish.
1: Um, Yes, I think the other two that uh, we discovered is one that most people have heard about, the uncertainty principle in physics. The uncertainty principle basically says that there's a limit to how well you can determine where the really small things in the universe are and how fast they're moving. It's just something that is a fundamental feature of our universe that you cannot do this perfectly. And that's one of the, fact, one of the things that impacts prediction. But it's also one of the things that, getting back to something that you talked about earlier, it's a dead end, but it's a dead end that has changed our world remarkably and for the better because if it weren't for the discovery of that dead end, we wouldn't have lasers, we wouldn't have computers, we wouldn't have magnetic resonance imagers, we wouldn't have everything that the electronics industry has been able to produce over the, uh, over the past half century. And the other discovery is one that's a little more concerned with mathematics, but it also delves into philosophy. Um, When I took geometry in high school, um, we proved things, and it seemed like everything in geometry uh, could be proved if you just took enough time with it. But it turns out that one of the discoveries of mathematics is that not all mathematical truth can be proved. There are some things which... Even though they're true, we may never develop the tools necessary to prove them. And that's impacted philosophy as well, because people think, okay, there are fundamental features to knowledge that may forever elude us.
0: Hmm. I think at one point you uh, are issuing, I think, an important warning in uh, in pointing out that we sometimes find ourselves sort of very taken by a, a certain discovery which has lots of sizzle when in fact in terms of application to our daily lives there isn't a whole lot of direct application and you suggest for instance the theory of relativity as as something that is undeniably important but not necessarily to every tom dick and harry and their daily lives compared to to other breakthroughs uh which in fact have much more impact on our daily lives. I thought that was an intriguing observation as well.
1: Thank you very much. Um, I thought it's it's important um, because we often overrate things, and I don't think that the uh, theory of relativity can be overrated either as an intellectual achievement, because uh, Time Magazine uh, had Albert Einstein being the man of the century, and certainly from numerous standpoints, from the fact that it's a brilliant, brilliant theory, and from the fact that Einstein basically put physics on the map so that people thought this is something that interests, is interesting, they discover interesting features about the universe. But from a day in, day out uh, basis, All that has really come from the theory of relativity is we did develop the atomic bomb, which certainly, you know, certainly has had a profound impact on our life. And it also enabled uh, atomic power, which is widely used in some countries, not so widely used in the United States, as you know. But if you look at a much more what might be called prosaic development in mathematics and physics, the development of uh, the theory of electromagnetism, there was a very simple experiment Um, Performed by Michael Faraday in the 1820s or 1830s, called the Principle of Electromagnetic Induction. And he discovered a relationship between electricity and magnetism that basically enabled us to build generators, the generators that power our lives, the generator that connects, uh, that supplies the electricity um, to enable us to conduct this conversation. It's far more useful. and uh, most people have not heard of either Faraday or Maxwell and these people had a much more profound effect upon our daily lives electricity is far more important than
0: I think uh, towards that end I mean you're so right that we don't stop to think first of all about the importance of something like electricity and we don't stop to think about what makes electricity possible <laughs> and especially what the the sort of breakthroughs that allow us to use electricity to manipulate it to develop it to find more sources of it and so on we just don't we just don't think about that another similar moment in your book i think is when you talk i think it's right off the bat in chapter 1 you talk about the importance of measurement and of course this takes us back many centuries before we were discovering electricity but just the idea of measurement being a a profound human accomplishment. You say measurement is one of man's greatest achievements. While language and tools may be the inventions that initially enabled civilization to exist, without measurement, it could not have progressed very hard. Measurement and counting the obvious predecessors to measurement were man's initial forays into mathematics and science. I mean, I really love the way you take take us back to, in a sense, the the very beginning of all of this. Um, and I, I wonder if you could explain how beyond it just being interesting, how that might also be helpful to us or beneficial to us to, to think about this.
1: Well, I always... Uh... I always emphasize in some of my classes how important precise measurement is. And one of the things that mathematics does is mathematics enables us to quantify what measurement is. I think, for instance, every every person nowadays uh, has a computer in their house. And if you think of the hard drive as spinning around at 7,200 revolutions per minute, and there are gigabytes of data in there, and you're trying to read that giga- those gigabytes of data. You have to know precisely what is passing under uh, the read head at any particular instant in order to make sure that you're getting precisely the information that you need. So, um, if you don't do this with perfect precision when you uh, click up a when you click up a word document, what might happen is you might get all sorts of different information. And the only way that we can do this is to be able to measure things and machine them to incredible levels of accuracy. And if you look at the history of civilization, the history of civilization is a history of improving the precision of measurement, improving the ability to be able to calculate with regard to measurement, and improving the engineering that enables us to uh, to produce objects which are machined or fabricated to ever and ever higher levels of precision. Hmm.
0: I have to say in closing that um, I will probably never sit at the counter of a diner in quite the same way after reading an interesting observation which you make early in the book. Uh, Tell our listeners, when you sit at the counter of a diner, uh, what you find yourself watching and being fascinated by and and appreciating uh, something which most of the rest of us uh, fail to appreciate or understand?
1: Well, part of the book is about the integration of tasks smoothly. And one of the first times that I really noticed this was when I was in graduate school. And when you're in graduate school, normally you find yourself scrounging up cereal for breakfast every day, but every so often I could afford to go to a diner. And there was a short-order cook there, and the way the guy moved was just absolute poetry. There's a big rectangular grill, and the guy had the fried eggs, all the eggs in one area, the hash browns in another, the waffles and pancakes in a third place, and the bacon and sausage in another. And it seemed like he was always attending to something, but... Whenever the eggs were ready, the eggs never got burned. He just moved over smoothly, flipped them over, took them off the grill when necessary. The uh, pancakes and wa- well, not the waffles because those are done on waffle iron generally, but the pancakes, he always flipped them over precisely right. He was moving from place to place, and I can so you know I can still remember it. It was just a joy to watch, and a lot of people, you know, we all take pleasure in watching um, in watching certain tasks being performed. You can, you know, but to me, when people gather around an excavation site, basically nothing is happening, or at least you very rarely see anything happening. But during the during the rush hour at breakfast, just watch the short order cook, Poetry in Motion.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. The book, again, is called How Math Explains the World, A Guide to the Power of Numbers from Car Repair to Modern Physics with thorough and interesting discussions about all kinds of things, including uh, the, the universe itself and its uh, sort of disorganization, the, uh, the, the problem with democracy and trying to create exactly the right scenario by which all are equally represented, um, it, uh, the, the, the way in which logic operates, uh, and so much real-life application. Uh, the book is a Smithsonian book, published by uh, HarperCollins. And Professor James D. Stein, I have thoroughly enjoyed this. I thank you for joining me today on The Morning Show. Best wishes to you.
1: Thank you so much, Greg. I've enjoyed it, too.